Welcome back to the 29th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders that intrigue us. I am Cindy. And I am Mercedes. This week, we are back in Waco, Texas to continue our two-part series on David Koresh and his ultimate hold on his followers. Thank you for listening to part one of the series last week. Fair warning, our show can be extremely horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but sometimes we will make jokes and we will will laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform, and please give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash itwasn'tmepod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than we can express with words. Thank you so much. Hey Mercedes, how you doing? I'm good, Cindy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Good, good. So anything new in your life going on? No, um, not really. I've been kind of in a super bitchy mood today. I don't know why. Um, yeah, but mm-hmm. everything's and everyone is getting on my nerves. So <laughs> if I sound snippy, I apologize in advance. Uh-oh, I've been warned. Well, and please don't take it personally. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not going to be you. Okay. I'm trying to think, Did anything has anything happened drastic in my life since last week? No. No. Uh, <laughs> hey, I got a new, I got a few new masks. Like you gave me the one with the teddy bear on it. And yes. then I got a couple Star Wars because we're recording today, May 4th. So may the 4th be, be with, with you. you. Yes. I'm still a little bitter about the whole mask thing because, and my friend, my friend Tracy called me this morning and she was like, and she'd been thinking about that too. She's like, you had to wear a mask for like eight months and then just when you didn't have to wear it anymore, now everyone... So, know. okay. So, I'm going to ask. Now, I know we've talked about your nose before. It's prosthetic, right? Yes. So, can you breathe? Like, do you actually have nostrils? Yes. And can you breathe? Oh, you do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, you should see her nose. It's super, super cute. Like, it's it's adorable. Um it's the most perfect nose you'll ever see. <laughs> it is pretty perfect. But I had a really good nose to begin with. Yeah, yeah. So the moral so. of the story is wear your fucking sunscreen. Yeah. And so you have to wear the mask also because you now, but you did. Like, I remember last year you were wearing the mask even last summer, weren't you or no? Yes, I wore the mask from May until January. So six months. No, so eight, seven, seven or eight months. months. Eight okay. Months, yeah. Yes, because we went, did we, oh, we went to go see our favorite podcasters. Yes. Yeah. Twice. Twice. And, but the first time, did you have a mask the first, no. Yes. Did you have mm-hmm. a mask the first time? Yes. yes. That's how they recognized us, I right? know, I they know. recognized us the second Listen. time. <laughs> <laughs> we do have favorite podcasters. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of great podcasters that we follow, but, you know, we were inspired by the guys at Small Town Murder. So if you've not checked them out, check them out. They're really funny. Um, they're an acquired taste. So if you're offended by them, give them a few episodes, but they're great. <laughs> they are great. Yeah. Right. So as I start part two, I wanted to add a couple of things that I didn't kind of know where I wanted to put them in within the story. So I'm just going to start with 
so can we just quickly, can you quickly tell us where we left off? Because um, I, did we leave off where the FBI and the ATF have not started investigating yet, right? Correct. We kind of like... We kind of, he's got the compound now. They've He's taken over and he's acquired this property. Yes. And he's got his followers. And, yes. And we so we're going to talk a little bit about how they're living, what, you know, where's their income coming from and that kind of thing this, today. Right. I'm pretty okay. much picking up with, like how they got on the ATF's radar. Okay. Like from that point. Okay. Like because what l- happened? Last week we talked about, oh Lord, Vernon, I can't remember his last name. Howell. Vernon Howell is really, that's David Koresh's real name. Correct. And we talked a little bit about what led him on this journey. Yes. And I actually watched, um, I mentioned it briefly last, last time was I watched the, um, the documentary uh, Truth and Lies Waco and they actually interview FBI agents they uh, like the agent in charge they interview um, some of the ATF agents like the ones that were injured shot the first ones in like the main guy running towards the door saying ATF we have a warrant is Truth and Lies is that on Netflix where is that Hulu oh okay I don't have Hulu so okay um but that guy doesn't even to this day he was still calling him Vernon Howell Right. It's like he wasn't even addressing him as David Koresh, even though David Koresh legally changed his name in California. That was like his legal name now, but he was still calling him Vernon Howell. It's like it's almost like a... Like it's, a, again, yeah, pissing contest or whatever. Right, yeah. right. So I want to start off by the book I also mentioned last week, The Waco Siege. The book states that that at this time, like in 1992-93, most Americans were unaware of the ATF. And that they were a lesser-known federal agency. And I don't know. Maybe it's because of where you and I are from, Mercedes, that I've always known what the ATF. We've always known what the ATF is. We know we yeah. live in a tourist area. And, um, you know, like most of us worked our way through college by bartending and serving alcohol. So the ATF would, like, hide out in the parking lots and send illegal not illegal. They right. would send um, underage people in to buy alcohol or to order drinks. They would pay, and them. then you know you would get slapped with a fine. You could you could possibly go to jail. Um, the business would get slapped with a fine, and after three times, they could be shut down. Mm-hmm. And you would definitely lose your yeah. job. So well, I've known <laughs> about the ATF since I was you know a wee thing. But yeah, um, can you tell me who wrote the book, The Waco Siege? Is that one of the is that one of the um, ATF people, or is that just an author that was interested? No, it was um, Jack Rosewood and Dwayne Walker. So were they um, were they members, or are they just like researchers? Like no, they're just researchers. Okay. Okay. I mean, from everything that I could. Okay, just curious because I know too that you're also quoting from um, David Thibodeau, who's actually there. He was actually one of David Koresh's right hand right hand right hand men yeah he was a devout i mean he was a follower he was like and and i did mention i also want which was the next thing i wanted to say before i get started was that i said that he was not there very long last time i mean in the scheme of things he wasn't there very long like some people were there for years five years you know longer but david thibodeau the author of waco a survivor story which is what the netflix series is based off of was um with koresh for a short time but i said a few months when he actually lived at the compound for about 18 months that's still not a super long time 
No. Uh, he was very young when he went in, correct? Yes. I believe he was like 19. Yeah. He just graduated from high school or something. Like, mm-hmm. he just started making his way in the world. And I remember just from watching the little bit of the episodes I saw that his mother was, you know, he was like constantly talking about, oh, yeah, I called my mom or I need to call my mom. And then yes. his mom was right there. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, she he's still very young where his mom's kind of, you know, still involved a little still bit. Still motherly. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He was actually from Maine. And and if I'm remembering correctly, because I watched the entire series, they didn't mention it made it seem like that they had met in Texas. But really, they met in California because that's where David Thibodeau was living at the time. And then there's some other things as that I'm going to tie into the story because I am not going to regurgitate the entire 51 day siege. Right. Most of us kind of already get the gist of what happened. You know, we know enough or we've watched it recently. So there's some different aspects that I kind of want to go into. You're going to actually take a different approach than most of the podcasts out there. Yes. And I know that you said just just to quickly introduce you are you have been listening to a podcast too. Yes. Um, it's called End of Days. And it's actually a English or British guy in his perspective. And he's interviewing um, how they infiltrated England and got members from from like Manchester and all sorts of things. They um, because they, you know, like I said, they are a sect off of the Seventh-day Adventists. Well, so David Koresh sent people to England to kind of recruit and they went to a college, and I can't remember the name of the college offhand, but it was a Seventh-day Adventist college. And they talk about how they came in and they were going to their Bible studies. And then it, it wasn't like just overnight, hey, come check us out. It was kind of like they infiltrated and they um, started these separate Bible studies where they were invite certain people that they felt kind of uh, a connection with. And the lady, one of the ladies whose sister ultimately went to Waco, was talking about how, you know, it's not like, how do these crazy people just fall in with this cult? And she was saying it wasn't like that. She was like, the devil, and it gave me chills listening to it. She said, the devil sends like-minded people, people who look like you, talk like you, work like you, do the same things that you do, read the same books that you do. And then once they get you, then they, they start to kind of like, alter what they're saying and saying well we also think this and they really played up David Koresh they're like there's this guy in Texas and he's just preaching that all of these things and they could open up to the Bible and say well he's taught us about this verse and this is what he has to say and and all of them say you know kind of how captivating he was and to listen to him and she was saying it was like his his voice and the way he spoke was just kind of sing song you just you like went with it was very charismatic yeah yeah i mean easy to listen to right i mean you think of all these people that are enthralled by these charismatic leaders who are insane for lack of a better word right yes um okay all right so how exactly did the branch davidians get on the atf ATF's radar. So what did we say last week that we thought? Because we kind of like had some theories. Um, I don't remember. But if you were to ask me to speculate now, I might say, you know, they might have bought um, a bunch of ammunition or a bunch of weapons. Maybe. Okay. Because remember last week I also said they had like that guy, the Mark guy who was an, an informant. And we kind of were like, well, did he just run to the ATF? Or did he go to the news? Like, how did this, how did he become an ATF informant? So um, ultimately how they got on the ATF's radar was that um, they bought they bought some stuff. And the, the Davidians U- bought some stuff. Yes. 
They bought some things. So they bought some stuff, man. They bought some stuff. So we speculated that the disgruntled Davidians maybe went to the paper, the ATF. But in truth, the ATF was already on to them starting as far back as 19, July of 1992. Which was how much longer before the siege? Well, um, a little less than a year. Okay. So the siege was April 19th, 1993. So going as far back as the summer of 92, they were already being investigated by the ATF. Okay. So on July 9th of 1992, a shipment of hand grenades were delivered to Mount Carmel, Mark, Ma- Mount Carmel via UPS. So UPS will deliver hand grenades? <laughs> I mean, are these like mail? You can order hand grenades? Well, so the UPS driver was making the delivery and I guess he dropped the box or the box broke open and the UPS driver saw hand grenades. Oh. They looked real. They felt real. So he was like, holy shit. So he called the police, notified the proper authorities, who then notified the ATF. However, the hand grenades turned out to be dummies, which you can order off the internet because I, I looked it up to see if you could order dummy hand grenades. So why would anybody want dummy hand grenades? Well... If you're looking at like what Michael Ryan did in Rula, Nebraska, you're um, preparing for an ap- a co- apocalypse. Exactly. So the dummy hand grenades, like I said, they are made to look, feel like a real, like they're the same weight and everything. But the and these dummies are used by the military and the police for in police forces for training purposes. Bingo. <laughs> exactly. So this report, along with multiple other reports of automatic gunfire coming from the compound, the ATF, you know, they finally were like, okay, so maybe we should take a look at these branch Davidians. So they opened an official investigation as of that okay. point. Because it wasn't just, oh, the hand grenades, but there was multiple reports of automatic gunfire coming from the compound. And, and you know what? Um, people who who believe that the Second Amendment should not have any sort of restrictions at all. Like, to me, a group like this, led by somebody who is... Um, charismatic yet obviously not saying I don't feel like they should be able to get their hands on things like this and amass them right they, but it, somebody should be looking into that yes and at this point they're not really sure they don't really know a whole lot about outside of their little commune and their compound other than oh he's just a preacher from those guys down there at, at Mark at whatever Mount Carmel right Okay. All right. So according to interviews with survivors on a program in, that I already mentioned, Truth and Lies Waco, everyone who lived at Mount Car- Carmel, I keep saying Carmel, it's Carmel. It's today. C-A-R-M-E-L, so Carmel. Yes. Okay. Right. So according to these, some of these survivors, they were taught about all kinds of weapons and how to use them from an early age. They were even taught the type of differences in helicopters. And that the kid, the kids were so if they were like outside playing and certain vehicles went by, planes, helicopters, they were aware of what type they were. So they knew that if they saw them, that they needed to go and run and tell an adult immediately if they saw these these types of vehicles. They were so open. David Koresh is instilling paranoia in these people, like he's expecting the government to show up. Yes. So in his mind, the apocalypse is when the government comes for them. And that's like Michael Ryan and Gordon Call and... Mm-hmm. Uh. 
Yes. And the guy that we're going to do when I do my next one. Right. So everyone had a duty and one woman, and I cannot remember her name. I'm sorry. But she was responsible for sewing bulletproof vest that they were going to wear when the government came for them. Wow. So they're all just waiting around for the government to come for them. I mean, that's the way these survivors made it sound like. awful existence. So as the investigation was launched, the ATF rented a nearby home. And if you've watched the series, you see that, okay? But here's the thing. Um, They were portraying themselves in the series, I believe, as like um, cattlemen, ranchers. But in real life, they were portraying themselves like as college students, but they were 40-year-old men. So right away, the, the Davidians were like... We're on to you. Right. They knew right away. Right. They're like, we're not stupid. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just because they might have been a little different and believed in different things did not make them stupid people. Right. Like, intellectual. I mean, you know. Yeah. So they instructed one of their agents to go in and befriend David Koresh, the Davidians, in hope of catching them with illegal gun sales. They wanted to sell them an illegal gun. So the plan, like I was just saying, the plan was flawed from the very beginning. Koresh was pretty suspicious immediately. So also, apparently, Koresh originally thought the agents were NIS, immigration. INS. INS, yeah. So they thought they were immigration because they had a lot of foreigners that lived there as well. So usually INS will come for illegal immigrants or people mm-hmm. who have outstayed their visas. Right. So he thought that originally that's who they thought. They knew that they were federal agents, but they didn't they didn't know that they were the ATF at first. Okay. So the agent, Robert Rodriguez is his name, um, would admit later that he would even, after listening to Koresh, he would start to question his Catholic faith. Oh. And after being taken in by Koresh's charisma and passion, despite knowing that Robert was a part of the government, and planted there on purpose, Koresh still attempted to convert him because he was like, well, that's okay. God brought him to me. He's here for a reason. And I mean, I guess I get that, you know, but. And what better way that to com- convert someone and have someone on the inside to give you information? Right. Which I'm sure was his, you know, ulterior motive. So when the ATF initially received the tip and started investigating, there was also allegations of child abuse committed by David Koresh. So do, are they finding out that these allegations of child abuse had been reported to like the Division of Family Services or something? Um, and so there's separate investigations from different agencies um there are what cps i guess is what they call it in texas or dcf like they call it in other places um they do get involved plus there's like child um custody battles going on with parents so like if a mom is there and the dad is the say in wisconsin then there's child custody battles going on then and then there's child custody like with other people in other states like there's because people are trying to get their kids out after some of this suspicion starts to come because kids starts to talk, kids start to talk. And, you know, so there's a bunch of different things. But I get it. I really do get into a couple of those cases later. Okay, good. Because that that to me is intriguing because, you know, people are like, oh, well, those people have the choice to leave. Well, not if you were a kid. Right. You did not have a choice to leave. No. If your mom brought you there and you're five years old. Even if you're, you're 12 years old. Even right. if you're 14. Yep. You know. How the hell are you going to get out? Exactly. So the ATF's investigation was officially called Operation Trojan Horse, predicted that there was a stockpile of semi-automatic weapons that had been illegally converted to automatic weapons because the sale of automatic weapons is not legal. So because they heard automatic gunfire, then 
because there were reports of automatic weapons being used. So they assumed and predicted that, okay, so they're buying semi-automatic, which is legal, and they're converting them illegally to automatic weapons. So that was their whole thing. Okay. That's part of their investigation. Whether it's a wide scope or not, that's where they were going. That's the investigation. So... So some people might say, well, this is this is a church. The government has no business with their nose in it. But at this point, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, still, churches still can't go around just breaking the law. Right. And at this point, they thought they were breaking the law. They had, but, and then, but they believe that they can because it's you know it's that old theory: God's law versus man's law. Right. So Mercedes's next bit of information will actually answer some of your questions from last week concerning oh, their income. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I want to know, um, like Michael Ryan, they went and they stole farm equipment and things like that, and cattle, and were selling them. So, right. Is it similar or no? No, what they weren't, what they were doing was not illegal. Oh, okay. Okay, so again, a lot of this information came from the Waco Siege book. According to the book, much of their income came from, they sold off some of the land that they originally bought within Mar- uh, Mount Carmel. They sold off some of that land for a profit. So they had that money. Many of the members held jobs in Waco. So, um, which I kind of get into in a little bit, but like some of them, there was the one, there was one guy who was a UP, or who was a, um, a mailman. Um, many members held jobs in the city of Waco. The church owned an auto shop not far from the compound. Um, but David Koresh learned early on, and the easiest and most lucrative way to earn money was to buy and sell firearms at gun shows. So was he like a gun dealer? He wasn't classified as a gun dealer, but he was, but he did go. I Okay. I did not see where anyone said he was a legal, like, gun dealer. But selling and buying firearms isn't illegal. Right. Like, I could sell you a gun. That I'm not a gun dealer. Do you have to do a background check on me? Like, if I were to buy a gun from you, would you have to do a background check on me? It depends. Gun shows have different laws. They, I mean, especially then versus now. But, like, if you were to buy a rifle, you don't have to, You can go into Walmart and buy a rifle. Now, if you're buying a handgun, there's a background check. So even if I were to buy from, like, a friend? Then, yeah, I, I, I could just sell it to you. I don't have to do a background check. You wouldn't check have anymore. to do a background check. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's, like, legal or not, but people do that all the time. Or okay. I just give it to you. No, I didn't sell it to her. I just gave it to her. I mean, like, my husband has one of friend's okay. grandfather's guns or some crazy shit like that. Right. You know? So um, Koresh and one of his fellow followers, Paul Fada, became regulars on the gun show Texas gun circuit. Both men were staunch believers in the Second Amendment. Big surprise. And they believed that they needed firepower for when the prophecies of Revelation came to fruition. So they were buying. They were buying and selling. They would buy a bunch and they'd sell some. So they were, I mean, that's how they earned, you know, quick money. Right. But they still were buying enough to to add to their stockpile, so to speak. And it's like, I'm all for the Second Amendment. I don't personally like guns but that's not my business if the person next to me wants to own a gun i don't give a shit but i think that when people amass them and say you know and have these ridiculous firearms that you know can kill however many people in one fell swoop like yeah. those are the things that i don't feel like should be legal my mom had a really good friend who had a special kind of license to have to have certain types of like he had automatic weapons but he was like a um, a collector, and he had a license through the ATF. Like, it's not a regular concealed weapons through, you know, through the city or whatever. It was, like, something he had to apply for 
and it was a, a license from the ATF. So that means like if he did anything crazy, they could immediately come. And then like if the police were called to his residence, that's like, okay, this guy owns right. this many guns. He has an ATF license or whatever it's right. called. So, I mean, the police were, because I know my ne- old next door neighbor um, has a lot of weapons and the police got called one day. And I remember the local college, their police, because they're right around the corner from where we were living, they were, they responded because they heard over the radio, like, what guns this guy owned and da-da-da-da. So, I mean, if you've got a license for some of these weapons, the police, they're going to know. Right. So, um, the talk, the show that I was talking about also talks about how each step of the ATF, each step that they took, played into the apocalyptic vision of Koresh. So they was like, see, they've done this. See, they're coming for us. See, I right. told you. I told you. Right. See, now you believe me. I, I am the all-knowing. So, I mean, it was just like, and then the people were like, oh, my God, you're right. He, he predicted this. He showed us in the Bible where it said this was going to happen, and now it's happening. But, I mean, it's common sense. If you're dealing drugs or you're dealing guns or you're doing something, there's always a chance that you're going to get caught, mm-hmm. and then you're going to have the government or the police breathing down your neck. Exactly. It's not like a... It's not a far-fetched prediction. (laughs) No, not at all. So, and like I already said, he believed that the apocalypse would begin when the government started it. And to me, that is just like frightening that there's probably people in our own town who believe that. I mean, so something like this could happen anywhere. I mean, remember not too long ago with that crazy-ass guy behind the Winn-Dixie was shooting up for all goddamn day, excuse my language? Yes. That was yeah. that was some scary shit. He was shit. actually taking shots at the um at the fire department. Yes. Yeah. But he was a veteran. Like he was he was not You know what? I want to do a show about about PTSD at some point, but um yeah, he had severe PTSD and mm-hmm. there were some issues there. So yeah, cuz he had a, killed somebody else before he Yes. Bar- two people barricaded right himself he killed the the ex-wife and her boyfriend or something yeah yeah something like that so the atf went as far to investigate a gun dealer that they were involved with so they used this particular gun dealer henry mcmahon mcmahon am i saying that right i, I would say yeah something like that yeah. so and so they even investigated him and he was an authorized gun dealer um, and for every sale that he made, he had he was required documentation. So he had all of that. Well, the ATF got a warrant to search his home and his business. And while they were there, he called up Koresh and said, they're asking questions about you. And Koresh has reportedly um, said the following. If there's a problem, tell them to come out here. If they want to see my guns, they're more than welcome. According to McMahon, agents declined to speak with Koresh or visit the compound. There's also an assumption an assumption that there were there was a legal drug use at the compound, but everything that I watched read debunked that assumption altogether. Koresh was very much against the use of drugs, and as I stated last week, he even frowned upon drinking alcohol and smoking, but lifted that ban as a result of sexual frustration. Right, so he allowed them, but I, I know that I read that he was attractive to some followers of um, Seventh-day Adventists because he did relax some of those really strict absolutely bans on things. So he was even known to have a beer every now and then. There was enough circumstantial evidence for the the ATF to obtain a federal search warrant for the compound, and they planned their raid for February twenty eighth, nineteen ninety three. It was a it was not a no knock warrant, and what that means is they have to legally re- to identify themselves upon arriving to conduct the search warrant. It's not excuse me. 
Mr. Crash, we have a search warrant. Can we come in? It's, this is the fucking ATF. Open the door or we're coming in. We have a search warrant. You said it was not a no-knock warrant. Correct. A no-knock warrant is they They come up and they bust down the door. Okay. Yes, it was not to that. They had to knock and they had to present the warrant and say, here's the warrant. We're looking. Okay. Yes, legally, that's what they were supposed to do. Somehow the local media outlet there in Waco learned of the warrant But on their way to the compound, they got lost. And so they're on the side of the road trying to figure out where to go. And a local U.S. postal worker stops to ask them if they need help. They're like, what's going on? Do you need help? And the person um, tell them, yeah, we're going out to the Mount Carmel, the compound out here. They're supposed to be, he gave up the goods. Well, that person, the postal worker, happened to be a Davidian. So he rushes to the compound and alerts Koresh to the raid. So Koresh sat with Robert sat Robert Rodriguez down and told him, said, look, I know that the ATF and the National Guard are on their way. I know that they're coming to raid the compound. Rodriguez rushes back to the house where the surveillance was, that rented house, and he warned them. He said, he knows they're coming. They're knows they're coming. You got to call this off. But no one listened to him. He knew that this would be a firefight. From the very beginning, this was not going to be peaceful. So Koresh told them that, um, oh, Koresh told Robert Rodriguez, the government will never have me again. Would never have him again. Right, because remember how he got in the the shootout with the uh, Rodin guy, the the guy who was the leader of the Davidians before him? Yes. And he was arrested and put in jail until he was acquitted. Okay. So he said, the government will never have me again. Okay. So right there... This was not going to end peacefully, period. Because in Koresh's mind, here it goes, it's beginning. So at the AT- an ATF agent is also quoted as saying that almost immediately, as soon as they got out of the vehicles, they pull up, they get out of the vehicle, and he says, as soon as my feet hit the ground, I heard pop, 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 pop. And he knew that they were taking fire. He also said that Koresh came to the door, opened it, and former Davidians state that Koresh was screaming that there are women and children inside. The agencies, the agents state um, that, that with the helicopters above, because there were helicopters flying over and everyone shouting at once, that to him, it just looked that he opened the door and they were yelling and running towards him, police, search warrant, and Koresh just shut, closed the door. Now, he could have been saying women and children, but there's 75 ATF agents running towards him and they might not have heard with helicopters and just craziness going on. So David Thibodeau, a former Davidian, states that Koresh told them that he was going to go talk to the agents and for everyone to just not do anything stupid. Thibodeau says that that is when the bullets started entering the building from the outside in. So the ATF is shooting back. Yes. According to Thibodeau. Thibodeau is saying that they started shooting first. One of the agents said that he saw bullet holes just start to appear in front of him. This is the same guy who said he was running up, yelling, ATF, police, we have a search warrant. And he said he just saw holes just starting to appear. And he said, wake up, stupid. They're shooting at you. So the ATF agent is like, I'm being shot at, so I'm going to return fire. And holy hell broke loose. So former Davidians um, that survived state the ATF did not identify themselves. I know that legally they have to, but Koresh knew, he knew then who was at the fucking door. Well, with all of that, all of that confusion, I mean, most, I know that they have to identify themselves. Most likely they did. And like you said, nobody heard it. But I can also imagine like their bulletproof vest and everything saying ATF all over it. Yes. 
Well, and the, he had already been warned that ATF and the National Guard were on their way. Right. Right. So, so, not, so my question is, is they get the search warrant, they knew there was going to be a problem? I mean, were they not thinking, okay, this might, you know, maybe he'll just let us in and let us look. They're just, you know, four or five of us go up there instead of coming up like, you know, an army. Right. But they knew they were outgunned. So, and I get, and when I get later on, when they say all the firing stopped, the ATF ran out of bullets. Like, they only had so many on them. So they weren't they didn't prepared ex- for a gunfight. Not, like, not to this scale. No. But they still brought a lot of backup. Yes. But, I mean, when the firing finally stopped, it's like they were almost out of it. Like, they were out. Okay. And they were in trouble, and they knew it. So it was never determined who fired first because the door. So you would think that if you forensically looked at the door, you would be able to tell if bullets were going in and I guess maybe like, especially if it was like a metal door or even a wood door, you'd be able to tell like if it went inward or outward. Right. But the door was destroyed on that day and never recovered. So I don't know if it like, if it was wood and it burnt to nothing or I don't know. I I was, I didn't read what kind of door, what type of material it was made out of, but it was never recovered. All right, so according to the legal team that represented the Davidians, when they visited the compound during the standoff, because they did request for their um, attorneys to come, and they said that the bullet holes appeared to be inward, meaning the gunshots came from outside. So their attorney said that, but there was no forensic, I mean, they have scientists there? Yeah, there's not, no. No. Crush's attorney asked him why he fired on federal agents, and he answered, I don't care who they are. Nobody is going to come into my home with my babies around with a gun, without a gun back in their face. That's the American way. This was, okay, so yes, I agree to a point. But he knew that federal agents were on their way. He knew they had a search warrant. It wasn't the middle of the night. It was 930, 10 o'clock in the morning. So it would be different, in my opinion, if they raided him in the middle of the night and they didn't know what the fuck was going on and they thought somebody was just home invasion. Because there have been cases where someone like recently was able to get off that a police officer came into their house, didn't identify themselves, and he thought that it was someone, I don't know where it was taking place, but it was recently, police came to arrest a girl for prostitution, should have worn out for arrest. Well, the uncle, they didn't know what was going on and they hear her screaming and he shot one of the police officers but he got off because he thought they it was determined that they didn't identify themselves appropriately i guess so i mean i get that you know it's 10 o'clock at night and someone come beats down your door you, you know get- what the atf looks like and you know what the national guard looks like especially you're starting daylight. a full-out war mm-hmm. if they have an, a search warrant yeah, you're starting a war, and that's exactly what he wanted because it played into his apocalyptic prophecy. Yeah, but you prophecy. know, he cares about his baby so much. Not enough to let him go. So the whole thing could have and should have been handled differently on both sides. I give it that, okay? The theory is that the first shot may have actually come from one of the helicopters flying above. Why? So there was a former Davidian that testified against other survivors when they went to, because a lot of these um, people were, pro- were, they attempted to prosecute them, um, stated that the shot came through the window, shattering the blinds. Again, there's no s- solid proof of that. But there was someone in the water tower who actually got shot and killed. And according to his autopsy, the trajectory ter- of the bullet was at level. So if he was in a water tower and the bullet's at level, they're assuming that it came by from the flying helicopter. And supposedly the people in the helicopter didn't have weapons. But if it was a helicopter with an ATF agent in it or 
any kind of if federal you're agent. shooting and you see a guy in a water tower, you're going to think sniper. Yes. So a jury would later agree that they would stay, they would later agree that, okay, yeah, most likely the ATF fired first through the doors, but it wasn't like out of let's kill these people. It was most likely out of chaos and fear. And just, especially if they heard, if they heard something that sounded like a pop, then it was, it was game time, you know? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, you've heard of friendly fire. I mean, well, then supposedly I read later on that there was like ATF agents shooting each other and that friendly fire. I'm like, I don't know if I, I know the friendly fire happens, but I don't know at that close range if it really happens. But then I also heard that from the, there were Davidians that had shot and killed each other too. So was that out of the chaos, a fear? Um, the Netflix series, series makes it appear that the ATF, that it all started when an ATF agent shot and killed a dog. But I looked for this. I looked in David Thibodeau's book and read the whole section on the first part and in the Waco siege. And there is absolutely no mention whatsoever of shooting a dog. Now they shot a dog at Ruby Ridge, but not, I could not find. And that's what upsets me so much about that Netflix document. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's sure it's based on truth, but it's a made for TV series. It's a lot like, um, you know, when I was a kid, Roots, um, you know, that's based on truth, but they change things. They combine characters. They dramatize right. events. It's not 100% accurate. Right. And even though this David Thibodeau guy and the head negotiator did counsel on the show, but, um, you know, they changed things to make it look better for TV, like you said. Right. Or, to, you know, shorten things or to help. Um, you know, move things from one point to another. You have to leave things out or, you know. Or you have uh, to do things like, like that because you don't know. Right. They don't know who shot first. So let's say, okay, well, let's say there's dogs barking and we shoot the dogs to make them shut up. Well, then the Davidians think, oh, they're shooting at us. And then they start shooting. So, I mean, it was like a, a good way to start the shooting, yes. I guess you would say. Yeah. Okay. So ATF agents attempted to breach the upstairs of the compound in order to reach the firearms because they had an idea of where the firearms were being located, or being located, were, were located. Um, they were met with resistance. An agent lost his life that day, and it was actually the day before his 26th birthday. Aww. So when he came in, um, one of the agents that were being interviewed on the TV show uh, Tr- uh, Truth and Lies, he actually was shot in the hip and the thigh, and as they're going through this window, the the young guy steps in and gets shot right in the head. Um he was shot in the head by a Davidian. There's also belief that during the absolute chaos, many agents were firing upon each other, um, which I've already I've gone over, and we discussed that already. Um, nearly two hours of shooting. I mean, that's a lot of bullets. And the ATF called a ceasefire. Okay, but are they not concerned about the women and children or the unarmed people, the shooting? I guess no one I mean, to in be. a way, I do kind of blame the ATF for this. In a way, not because I think it's their fault but i think that you know you're the government institution this is not going the way you had planned it's time to back up regroup and plan again right you're the responsible person and you know right yes you're the responsible adult so act like it right right so koresh agreed to allow the atf to carry off their dead there was 14 excuse me there were four atf agents that were dead and 14 
were injured. So there were a lot of people there for the ATF. It was looked like a war. Yeah. When, on this show that I watched, um, some of the k- kids that are survivors that had eventually left, like during, because there were times that people left, and we'll get on that to do. They said it looked like little black dots just coming in. Now, they were outnumbered. The ATF, like two to one. So there were a lot more people in the house than there were ATF agents. Right. But, you know, you see an army coming at you. You know, you get a little freaked out. And that's all you're talking about are the end of days, the days of revolution and, yeah. and war. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, this is it, you know. So um, one of the Davidian followers by the name of Wayne Martin was also a lawyer. So he was one of their lawyers, too, just not the ones that came to the compound during the siege. Um, they call, So he called 911 trying to get, tell the ATF to stop firing. And of course, the, the ATF hadn't communicated with local police departments. So they didn't know what the hell was going on. So stop firing. Um, but there was nothing really the police could do at this point. You know, you can't come in. You know, that's not how this works. Okay. So the police finally, they did get like the ATF on the line and they were kind of communicating back and forth. I watched an interview with a person who was actually doing the communicating and he said it was very well. He's like, I got, okay, the ATF says they're going to stop. They're going to stop. They're going to have a ceasefire. But David, we need to talk about this. And, and it's recorded. I heard it with my own ears. He is as cool as a cucumber. He is just like, well, Lieutenant Lynch. David Koresh. David Koresh. David Koresh. Yeah, yes. this Lieutenant Lynch was like, you know, saying the same thing, that he was so cool. And all he wanted to do was talk about theology. He was in the seven seals, not how to get the ATF to listen. He was like, David, we can talk about theology later. He's like, no, we can't. We got to talk about the seven seals and theology now. It's like, it was all about his his agenda. He didn't care about, he says he cared about all those other people, but clearly he didn't because he's on 911. So Wayne Martin called 911. They got disconnected and the Lieutenant Lynch called back to the compound David Koresh answered the phone. He's like, who is this? And he says, this is David Koresh, the infamous. Really? That's how? No, not the infamous, the notorious. Uh He said, David Koresh, the notorious. During an ATF raid, that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to, like, approach the situation? I don't know. So it's speculated that the ATF was already facing an impending budget hearing and this raid and interest in the Branch Davidians was just a publicity stunt. But of course, that's heavily denied by the ATF. So this is when the FBI says, hold up. Now we have hostages. Right. We're taking over. So I think that I need to maybe go back just a little bit further because I think this plays into a huge part of why kind of what happened happened. So I want to just briefly mention Ruby Ridge. Now... Ruby Ridge could be its own episode all by itself. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But just want to simply say that just like Waco, just saying Ruby Ridge can invoke a range of emotions from one extreme to the other. You say Waco, people know what you're talking about. You say Ruby Ridge, people know what you're talking about and people get heated. I don't remember Ruby Ridge, but I do remember it was a standoff with the FBI. And I remember like a little child got killed or something. Yes. So... Uh, I personally believe that this is a part of why and how Waco was handled. Right. So it may not seem that way at the time. When, but did, looking, Ruby, when did Ruby Ridge happen? Nine, well, it was from like 88 to like 90, 92? No, what, 92? 91? Okay. Give or take. So um, Ruby Ridge is located in northern Idaho. So just a little, t- a little 
info on it. So a white separatist named Randy Weaver sold an illegal altered shotgun to an informant to the FBI. The sale led to the ATF to try to convert Randy Weaver as an informant, and he refused. So they charged him with a felony. Now, I don't go into much more on my in my notes, but I will go ahead and say, so because they... It was 1992. It August was 1992. Okay. So. Um, yes, because so it was the prior year. I was thinking it's Waco a, was 92, but Waco was 93. So it was a year before. Um, just a few months before. So if the, if the, ATS, started, if the AT, ATS started investigating David Crash in July of 1992, and then Ruby Ridge happened in August of 1992... It was the next month. You see the urgency behind. You right. Know, that's what they do. The ATF investigates these types of things. So is the FBI trying to, um, what, what is it, get redemption here? Well, I kind of maybe think that they were trying to clean up. Because so the ATF was the original person who was handling the agency that was handling Ruby Ridge. Well, when he wouldn't become an informant, they just charged him with a felony. Well, Instead of, like, running off and escaping, you know, I mean, he was a wanted felon. He was a fugitive from the law. But he just went home. So the marshal service, because he was a federal fugitive, the marshal service is who goes and arrests those people. Well, they show up. They did not identify themselves. There was a dog barking. Then ATF agent shoots the dog, I think. And then the kid, the 14-year-old kid Samuel, was like, um, in an outhouse, like in a shed near, like in the backyard or something. Well, he shoots a federal agent and then they shoot him and they kill him. So then all hell broke. So, so then the FBI is called in because technically they're barricaded in this cabin or this house in northern Idaho. And he is a white separatist, meaning as defined by the the ADO, which is the Anti-Defamation League, a white, white separatist separatism is a form of white supremacy that emphasizes on the idea that white people should exist separately from all inferior non-white races whether by establishing an all-white community somewhere or removing non-whites from their midst some white supremacists are also use the phrase because they believe it may be more benignly perceived by others than the term white supremacist so they call themselves a white separatist instead of a right White and that's what Gordon Call was. That's what um, Michael Ryan was. But David Koresh, his his followers were diverse, correct? Yes, they were very diverse. But I'm. But mm-hmm. this is just leading up to why the ATF. Right. So I mean, the ATF was involved, and the Marshal Service was involved, and then the FBI was involved. So then, like I was saying, a couple years later, the marshals they fail to identify themselves. They get into a shootout, leaving Marshal leaving a Marshall and Weaver's 14-year-old said Samuel dead. The FBI's called in, and a sniper shot killed Weaver's wife, who was holding a 10-month-old baby. Now, I read two different accounts. I read where she was standing in the door, calling her husband's name, and he was running in the house. And then I read an account where she was standing behind the door when the sniper shot, and it went through the door and killed her. I don't know. I've read both accounts. The same FBI sniper was at Waco. So, wow. The entire ordeal was a train wreck from the beginning. The ATF, like I said, passed it on to the marshals, never once informing them that they had tried to already obtain Weaver as an informant. So, they weren't talking to each other. Clearly, these federal agencies need to talk better amongst themselves, okay? They're all on the same team. 
The ordeal finally was over after 11 days, thanks to the help of civilian negotiators. Now, all of the, the killing, the son, the wife, all of the dead, the dog, the, the marshal, that all happened within the first two days of those 11 days. Wow. So the government attempted to charge Weaver and Harris because there was a, a friend there um, who was living there in the house, like a family friend, with murder of the U.S. Marshal. But they were acquitted as well. Weaver did spend time in jail, like 18 months, for the original charge of the illegally altered shotgun. They both families sued the federal government and reached settlements. So he's out and about somewhere. Okay, so I wanted, I gave you all that because I felt like the FBI, all of these agencies kind of felt like, well, maybe we need to like, you know, we need to straighten up. We need to show them that we're not, we're not just a bunch of trouble and that we can do something peacefully and that we know what we're doing. By all accounts, hands down, the FBI did not want Waco to be another Ruby Ridge. They were like, we can't fuck up again. The FBI hostage recovery team, which is the HRT team, who were the people who go in, and they were in charge of this operation. The HRT team? What did I say? You said the HRT team. Wouldn't it be just the HRT, like the hostage recovery team team? (laughs) HRT. I don't want to. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So so they had FBI negotiators, but the negotiators weren't like in control. They're not, they still had someone they had to answer to. So as you can imagine, these are two totally different breeds of people. HRT want to go in, deal with the shit, knock down doors, handcuff people. You know, they're kind of like the more oorah where the negotiators are like, no, let's just talk about this. Now just calm down. Let's just talk. They were in favor of a more long-term plan, leaving, trying to, the, the idea was like, let it, be their idea you know let's talk them into leaving they need to know that they're going to leave and that they need to leave without violence but if they don't leave in a timely matter they're going to go in and get them like the hrt people are going to go in and they're going to get them and they're going to bring them out okay so early on koresh agreed to surrender if his message was broadcast to the masses that didn't work out so well for him so okay so you're going to tell us that it was broadcast it was broadcast yeah Okay. He even spoke with CNN. One of the other people that on the the show that I watched with interviewing, they said within like minutes, CNN's on the on, got him on the phone before they cut their lines. CNN's on the phone with them. Radio outlets are calling in, and there was a little interpretation of that on the on, on the show. But um, all he wants to talk about is his interpretation of the Seven Seals. Damn it, he don't care about nothing else. Let me get my word out about the Seven Seals. We already talked about that last week. His interpretation of the seven seals, which is the steps of the apocalypse. A number of the Davidians did leave at this time. He literally, people go, you're free to go. Just not my children and not my wives. And how many wives did he have and how many children? Let's go over that again. Okay, so 22 wives. What? (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking like five. No, the house of David. I get into the house of David too. So he had 17 children. Okay. And I do get into, so so I don't want to give it away yet, but I do, I do. 17 children and 22 women that are his wives. Yeah. So he's only letting men leave. No, he did let some other women go that weren't considered his wives and that weren't his children. He did not freely let at this point in time on April or February or the 51 days between February and April, he did not freely let any of his children and wives go. Okay. Did any of his children and wives get out? I'll let you know that later. Oh. <laughs> so 
Correct. Okay, so Koresh would not let any of his wives or children leave the compound. Okay, once again, I don't want to regurgitate just everything that you can, you've already listened to, you've already watched. If you're old enough to even remember Waco, I just don't want to sit here and regurgitate everything to you. So I want to go into why. Why are we here? Why did this happen? So the Lieutenant Lynch, Lieutenant Lynch that spoke with Koresh during the initial 911 call, during the FTA FTA raid, I cannot talk. That's okay. Can be heard on the recorded line asking, you know, who he was talking to. And he says, David Koresh, the notorious. During the same call, Lynch has to get Koresh back on track, talk about the shooting, talk about the ATF, the getting the ceasefire. But he just keeps going back to his prophets, prophecy and the theology of the seven seals. Former members are quoted as saying that Koresh had never received this kind of mass publicity before. So this is exactly what he wanted. He was like, I'm playing right into this. CNN was able to get a Koresh on the line and ask him how heavily armed they were. And David Koresh said that he didn't think that was anyone else's right to know. Media asked the FBI why Koresh wasn't arrested in town when he left the compound. And the FBI states that he wasn't leaving, yet many people say that they saw Koresh in town many times at different locations, even like a... But the one guy that they interviewed said, I'm pretty sure he was in here last week and it was like a eating tacos and, or eating salsa and chips, I think. So, I mean, I don't. So he doesn't know. Swear yeah, he couldn't it. swear. That's David Koresh and right. I know who he is. And, and you're talking Texas. So I imagine that a lot of the people there were anti-government, anti-government. No, I don't want to say anti-government, but pro-gun, pro um, individual, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but here's what my thing is, is if they would have arrested him in town peacefully, okay, you're under arrest, this is what we're doing. Wouldn't that just make room for the next guy? Well, not only that, but he's going to get out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they just arrest him and if, what if it doesn't stick? What if they can't prove anything? He's just going back to his normal pedophile bullshit. So, and it just makes room for the next guy too. You cut off the snake's head and, you know, I mean, that another one grows back. I mean, just like terrorists. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about all the allegations that how we got here. Yes, because right now we're not really seeing David Koresh as an evil person. We're seeing him as somebody's rights were violated. Sure. You know, yes, he was a stupid man, but I mean, what did he do that was so awful? Right. Okay. Well, here we go. The allegations against Koresh are kind of endless. You know, I don't go into all of them because we don't have time for that. There are former Davidians that will confirm the claims of child abuse and pedophilia. And there are ones who will die defending him. There's ones who died defending him. Even though they know that he did that. Yeah, I mean. This is the Messiah, for God's sake. Let him fuck my daughter. Pretty much. So according to David Thibodeau's book, Waco, A Survivor's Story, he was able to find out more about the sexual connection that David had with underage girls because Thibodeau was asked to marry Michelle Jones. Now, Michelle Jones is the sister of David Koresh's legal wife. Whom he married when she was only 14. Yes. So Koresh presented this to him as a sham wedding to deflect investigators who were beginning to nose around the compound. Thibodeau was not the only resident asked to marry one of the wives. And I say wives in quotations. Michelle gave birth to Koresh's daughter, Serenity, when she was only 14 years old. 
and would later have twins, Chica and Little One, two years later. So she was 14 and 16 when she had children. Yes. No telling when he originally started having sex with her. Right. Before she got pregnant. Well, Thibodeau claims that Koresh had a vision that he received on Mount Zion that included a a command to have a child with Michelle, his wife's 11-year-old sister. And and the wife also knew this and kind of gave her sister up, right? Well, yes, so to speak. So there was much conversation with the members, and many believed that it was God's command. God said it. You got to do it. Even Rachel and Michelle's parents were ready to give over their daughter, although they did have concerns that their daughters would one day leave the group as their older children did. However, I do believe that that UPS driver was their brother. Not the UPS driver, the postal man who warned them. I think that that was their brother, one of their brothers, but their other children had left. They didn't live there. So the, so these underage girls are parents. Are members. Yeah. Are members. And are, are saying, yes. Rachel was conflicted at first. This is his legal, Koresh's legal wife. Was conflicted at first, but then had a dream that David would be destroyed, even die, if he did not follow through with the divine command. So, in 1987, Michelle became Koresh's lover at 12 years old. With everybody's permission. Yes. Okay. I mean, it just blows me away. Now, it was legal in the state of Texas to get married at 14 years of age with parent permission. However, it was not legal to have a child with a 14-year-old out of marriage. So, she had a baby at 14. Well, if they were legally married, there would that wouldn't be a problem. But they weren't legally married, so that's a problem. That's assault. That's sexual assault, in the eyes of the law at that time. There was talk around the compound that Koresh had an affinity for young girls. So there was some gossip going around, um, but that didn't keep him from creating the House of David. Oh, the House of David. The House of David would require the virginities of several young girls. In 1987, Koresh would also take on uh, Clive Doyle's daughter, 14-year-old daughter. Clive is actually a survivor. He would take on his daughter, Karen, at 14 as a wife, along with 17-year-old Robin Buns, 20-year-old Dana Akimoto. And Dana would later leave the community, taking her son, Skylar, and Scooter with her. So how was she able to take these children out? This was like before, long before when she left. He tried to fight her. But he lost. He tried to, like, fight her for custody, and he lost. Only three of Koresh's children would survive the destruction of the compound. Robin's son, Sean, would also survive. And he tried to fight for all of them, but lost. Because she got the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robin's family, they, um, there was, like, they all left. Mom, dad, brother, sister, they all left. In 1988, Koresh would also take on a 19-year-old Nicole Gent as a wife. And in 1989, he would take Aisha Garface, Gar- Garface. 13, year old, 13 years old into the house of David. Aisha would give birth to a da- daughter, Startle, in 1992. None of the above mentioned children had birth certificates because Koresh believed that they belonged to God, not the state. Well, and you damn sure don't want documentation. Right. Because all these young girls having children. Right. Exactly. But remember how we talked about maybe like Medicaid or welfare fraud? Yes. But without a birth certificate, they wouldn't have been able to get any of that. Well, right. Right. Well, I don't know. Um, 
I don't know about that. What I do know is that most likely, if he's that much anti-government, he might not have gone that route. I would. So I know like Warren Jeffs and um, some of the other people that I'll talk about, mm-hmm. they would have their sister wives who they were not legally married to would put unknown father on the birth certificate and then they would go and get um, welfare. And, and But they had birth certificates where these kids didn't have yeah. birth certificates. They said they did have someone who came to the compound to help deliver babies, but none of them had birth certificates. None of them. Caresso, Caresso, <laughs> Koresh was also alleged to be involved in multiple incidents of child abuse um, and child sexual abuse. His doctrine of the House of David did lead to marriages, both married and single women in the group, purportedly including at least one underage girl. Well, that, there's lots of underage girls. Right. The underage girl was Michelle Jones, the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel, and daughter of lifelong Branch Davidians, Perry and Mary Bell Jones. Now, Perry would actually be one of the ones who died that first day in February. A six-month-long investigation of child abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protective Services in 1992 failed to turn up any evidence, possibly because the Branch Davidians concealed their spiritual marriage of Koresh to Michelle, assigning a surrogate husband, David Thibodeau, to the girl for the sake of appearances. Regarding the allegations of child abuse, the evidence is less certain. In one widely reported incident, ex-members claim that Koresh became irritated with the cries of his son Cyrus and spanked him, spanked the child severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom. In a second report, a man involved in a custody battle um, visited the compound and claimed to have seen beatings of a young boy with a stick. By David Koresh. Yes. Uh, finally, the FBI's juris- jurisdiction. Just- justification. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Golly. Uh. Justification for forcing an end to the 51 day standoff was predicted. Uh, predica- predicate. Say it again. Predicated. Predicated on the charge that Koresh was abusing, abusing children inside the compound. There were allegations he had fathered several children in his cult. In hours following the deadly um, confession, Flagration. Attorney General Janet Reno told reporters that they had specific information that babies were being beaten. However, FBI Director William Sessions publicly denied the charge and told reporters that they had no such information about child abuse inside the compound. A careful examination of other child abuse charges found the evidence to be weak and ambiguous, casting doubt on the allegations. The allegations of child abuse stem largely from from detractors and ex-members. The 1993 Justice Report cites alleged allegations of child sexual and physical abuse. Legal scholars point out that the ATF had no legal jurisdiction in the matter of child protection, and it appears that these accounts were inserted by the ATF to inflame the case against Koresh. For example, the account of former Branch Davidian Janine Buns, remember, that's Robbins. Right. Uh Um, I believe it's Robin's mother, is um, reproduced the affidavit. She claimed that Koresh had fathered at least 15 children with various women and girls and that she had personally delivered seven of these infants. Buns also claimed that Koresh would annul all marriages of couples who joined the group and had exclusive sexual access to women and girls. And we had talked about this last week. Like if a married couple comes in, David Koresh would say, your your marriage is no longer legal. She's my wife Mm -hmm. now. So these men were not allowed to have sex with any of these women, some of whom they were married to. Correct. 
And that's in David Thibodeau's book. And as how well. on earth? But oh yeah, here have some alcohol and some cigarettes, right? That'll make you feel better about it all. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't understand anybody who would give his wife up to another man for any reason. No, I can one hundred percent tell you that that would never happen in my marriage, ever. I mean, you know, maybe if somebody's like, "Hey, look, I'll give you fifteen million if I can have a night with your wife." I mean, I don't I mean, know. If Gerard <laughs> Butler shows up to the house, I mean, I'm not saying. <laughs> All right. So there is multiple accounts of Koresh fathering multiple children by different women in this group. His House of David doctrine was based on a purported revelation that involved the procreation of 24 children by chosen women in the community. These 24 children were to serve as the ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. Okay, so these are special children. Yes. In his book, James Tabor states that Koresh acknowledged on a videotape sent out of the compound during the standoff that he had fathered more than 12 of the children by several wives. On March 3rd, 1993, during negotiations to secure the release of the remaining children, Koresh advised the negotiation team that my children are different from those those others referring to his direct lineages versus those children previously released so he didn't like really let those kids go you know he let oh well they they're not they're not of me they're not of my bloodline so they can go yeah you're not taking my kid yeah you're not taking my kid basically yeah so i want to there's one particular girl i want to talk about because she actually testified at the congressional hearings so her name is i'm gonna say her name is Carrie, Kiri, it's K-I-R-I, Kiri, Kiri Jewel. Kiri Jewel was 10 years old when what she calls grooming began, began, began. She remembers that Koresh called her special and would take her places by herself, which she also states almost never happened with any other girls. And she, like I said, she was like 10 years old. Kiri's mother was a devout member of the Davidians and brought her there. Calmly reading from a prepared statement as her father, David, gently stroked her hair back, Jewel said that she and her mother, Sherry, first lived with Koresh in the late 80s in a two-bedroom house in San Bernardino, California. She also resided with sect members in houses in Pomona and Laverne, Laverne before moving to the Mount Carmel and Waco. She recounted that Koresh spanked her twice, Though she knew that he had spanked other children when they were babies and had spanked them by, and but they had them spanked by women. Once when she was eight years old, Jewel said that Koresh spanked her after she said that she was going on a diet. He used a big wooden boat oar that they used for adults. So I guess adults got spankings. Okay. Not the wooden spoon they called the little helper, she said. Her second spanking was for violating Koresh's teaching by buying candy from a vending machine. So no candy, I guess, or no vending machine. I don't know. When Jewel was seven, Koresh notified her during a motorcycle trip to Mount Baldy in San Bernardino Mountains that she would be among his chosen women. On this trip, he took me for a ride down a, a mountain ski trail on a chairlift, Jewel said. There wasn't any snow, but it seemed like we could see the whole world. That was when David said personally to me that one day I would be one of his wives. Her description of sex with Koresh was so graphic that lawmakers felt compelled to warn television viewers. Jewel testified that Koresh had intercourse with her in 1991 when she was 10. She said the incident took place in a Dallas area motel while her mother and friend were out shopping. Now, 
let me just finish before I go into the next part. I took a shower. Then I was brushing my hair, sitting in the chair, and David told me to come sit down by him in the bed, Jules said. He kissed me, and I just sat there, but then he laid me down. Afterward, Jules said Koresh read to me from the Song of Solomon. She testified that Davidians fully expected during the, the Waco siege that they would be killed by the feds. They also prepared for suicide. It was also accepted that the best way to shoot yourself was to put a gun in your mouth back to the soft spot above your throat before pulling the trigger. So he's teaching these children how to commit suicide. Yes. And she she also is in the interview on The Truth and Lies Waco, along with another surviving child who said the exact same thing so about the gun. About how putting did it in your she mouth. get out? Well, she's not one of his children. She's just one of the chosen wives. Right. Um, so Jewel left the compound in 1992 when her father won a court hearing prohibiting Koresh and her mother from contacting her. I also read elsewhere that Sherry would receive, Sherry is the mother, that she would receive strict supervised visitation only, but that a judge and wherever they were from strictly prohibited any branch Davidian having any contact with his with his daughter. Her father sought custody on the basis of molestation. Kiri would eventually testify at the congressional hearings on Waco. There are numerous reports and interviews with her and her father, David Jewell. Kiri's mother, Sherry, was one of the Davidians that died on April 19, 1993. In David Thibodeau's book, however, he refutes these claims, stating that Jewell was being melodramatic concerning her testimony. He also claims that Curie's grandmother states that Curie was living with her at that time in California at the time of the hotel incident. However, Curie's grandmother did not testify at the hearings stating otherwise. Wow. So he just doesn't want to hear the truth either. I mean, why would a 10-year-old make up this shit? Yeah. And I read that, oh, her aunt helped her put this, this statement together. Well, she was a child. Right. She wouldn't. I mean, she would need, I mean, some assistance, but they're trying to blame it off like, oh, well, she fabricated it. She, you know, this melodramatic. So real quick on, obviously, we all know what happened on April 19th, 1993, but I'm going to, I'm going to read a synopsis of it anyway. The siege began on February 28th, 1993, when the ATF raided Mount Carmel. The ensuing gun battle resulted in the deaths of four agents, six Branch Davidians, one of them being the Perry Jones guy that we talked about, which is Rachel and... Michelle's father. Okay. Rachel being David Koresh's legal wife. Shortly after the initial raid, the FBI hostage hostage rescue team took command of the federal operation because FBI had jurisdiction over incidents involving deaths of federal agents. So because there was a death of a federal agent, the FBI, because they obviously the ATF doesn't investigate their own. Like if we have a police shooting here, our people who police the police come in. Um, the negotiating team established contact with Koresh inside the compound. Communication over the next 51 days included telephone exchange with various FBI negotiators. Koresh himself was seriously injured by a gunshot on that, on that first day in February. As the standoff continued, Koresh and his closest male leaders negotiated delays, possibly so that he could write his religious documents he said he needed to complete before he surrendered. So that was like his whole thing. Well, let me write this. And it was like taking too long. And the FBI, they were like, this shit's got to come to an end. But and he was me, just like, I mean, what better place than to write your doctrine than in a jail cell? Right. Write your manifesto there. Right. 
right? Just like Hitler did. <laughs> His conversations with negotiators were dense and included biblical imagery. The federal negotiators treated the situation as a hostage crisis because that's essentially what it was. Whether those people realized they were being held hostage or not, they were. The siege of the compound ended 51 days later on April 19, 1993, when Janet Reno, who was the U.S. District or U.S. Attorney General, approved recommendations of FBI officials to proceed with the final advance into the Branch Davidians to be removed from their building by force. In an attempt to flush Koresh from the stronghold, the FBI resorted to pumping CS gas from an M728 or M728 combat engineered vehicle with a battering ram into the compound. In the course of the advance in the compound, the church building caught fire in circumstances that is still disputed today. Okay, so I, I want to back up for just a moment because huh? one of our mutual Facebook friends said, uh, had mentioned CS gas and how it had been um, what, determined to be a war crime to use CS gas the Geneva, in war. Yeah, I guess the Geneva Convention. And CS gas, again, is tear gas. Yes. All right. So do you want to expound on that for just a moment? Because tear gas, I mean, police still use tear gas, right? Yes, they do. Oh, you go into that. I do. In a but minute. I, we'll okay. go, I'll go into it now. Okay. It's fine. So CS gas is also known as tear gas, like Mercedes just said. It is a chemical weapon that causes severe eye and respiratory pain, skin irritation, bleeding, blindness. In the eye, it stimulates the nerves of the lacrimal gland <laughs> to produce tears. Okay, so the Chemical Weapons Convention did outlaw the use of tear gas in warfare. Here's the here's the clincher. I was, you know, by myself before I even got even too far, even before our friend mentioned anything on Facebook, I looked into CS gas and when it was outlawed. It literally was written in to be outlawed by as chemical warfare in January 1993. That was when it became a law. But when was it to? No, that's just when it. So that's when the the it's called the Chemical Weapons Convention okay. Act, and that's when it was finalized within 1993. It did not take effect until April of 1997. So to say that it was against the Geneva Convention, which technically chemical warfare, if you want to go back to like 1925, yes, but there's a clause for tear gas. So tear, glass is, tear gas is not illegal. CS gas is not illegal unless we're using it on our enduring war against our enemies. However, police officers use it every day for riot control and you can walk down to your local gun shop and you can buy your ass some tear gas and a little can which is the same compound for cs for cs gas and you can use it for self-defense it is absolutely not illegal to use it for self-defense or riot control and we were not at war amen so that's all i have okay. to say about that all right thank you <laughs> In the course of the advancement in the compound, after the CS gas, and they did pump a lot of CS gas. I will give them that. And I did read somewhere else where it says when you pump CS gas, dry CS gas, like the powders, into an inside environment, that is where it's dangerous. Plus, they were chunking uh, flashbangs in there, and that could ignite fires. But I also read somewhere else where they, that other Davidians admitted that they had started fires. And then some say, no, it was the ATF that started the fire. It was the CS gas who started the fires. No one knows who started the fires, other than the fact that they shouldn't have fucking been there to begin with. They should have already been released. So ultimately, I blame David Koresh. According to so the barricades inside of the building started, they were barricading themselves in there. They started to collapse and they couldn't get out. All the women and children were like in this vault-like thing. They couldn't get out. 79 Branch Davidians died that day during the blaze when it caught fire. 21 of these 
victims were children under the age of 16. According to the FBI, Steve Schneider, Koresh's right-hand man, who probably realized that he was dealing with a fraud, shot and killed Koresh and then committed suicide with the same gun. But a second account, totally different story. Koresh, then 33, died of a gunshot wound to the head during the course of the fire. No one really knows who killed him or if he killed himself. We have no way of knowing. There's no recording. People had already, the few people that did get out were already get, had already gotten out. So this is pure speculation. So what about all the writings that he was doing? Are those gone? They're gone. So he didn't even put them in a, a fireproof, those important writings. So here's some aftermath. And I found this really shocking because, like I said last week, I, you know, I did a paper on Koresh in, in, uh, in college, but Either I have blocked it out or I didn't do a good job or I just didn't have this information right here towards the end. And you'll know what I'm saying. Well, so. I just I do want to remember, I can see that you're going to say something about Janet Reno. But and and I like Janet Reno. I mean, I thought she was very responsible. She was very well spoken. She felt awful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, she took the blame. She she did take the blame, but I never thought it was her fault. But I remember the backlash like people hated her and then the whole elian gonzalez thing later in miami okay right they hated her she required she made them him go back yes which was the right thing to do but i actually just a little segue here actually was in college at the time and i was taking spanish and my spanish teacher at the time that this was going on was from cuba and she was one of the she was a kid and Kind of like the um, yeah the Kinder Train and yeah. I, the I actually know a, a girl whose mom was on that was on the boat that yes. they let mm-hmm. so many children out yes. of Cuba. She there were family members that she never saw again. I mean, she like teared up in class and she was like, "You cannot listen to CNN. You cannot listen. Those people do not want to go back to Cuba." I mean, like she was very passionate about. it. I remember that very vividly. Yes. But and she was, you know, but so she was totally that's that. His father didn't give him permission to leave. I mean, that's just like if that's why you can't. That's why I couldn't go and get a passport without my husband's signature for my kids. You have to have unless you have sole custody of your kids. You cannot get a passport without both parents signing it. Who's ever on the birth certificate. So so it doesn't matter whether or not Cuba is a great place. What matters is you don't take take that child from the kid if if the parent is Right. Is a great father or is providing... Well, and that mom died at sea. His, right. Elian Gonzalez's mom died. So he's got that traumatic incident. Yeah. So I wonder how that kid's doing. I mean, he's a grown-ass well, man he's now. He's a grown man now. Yeah. Right? All right. So here's a little tidbit that I found, like, very shocking. Okay. So the U.S. Attorney General, Janet Reno, authorized an assault to end the siege that, car- that was carried out on April 19th, 1993. The FBI HRT team... <laughs> <laughs> Team's plan was to pump tear gas, CS gas, in an attempt to force the Branch Davidians to leave the compound. But no one left during the six hours that tear gas was used. Around noon, three fires broke out. Could it, could it be possible that they were dead already? I don't think so because there's still people who got out eventually, like right as I the fire started. I guess I could started. also do autopsies and know if any of that stuff is in their lungs. Yeah, because okay. a lot of people did die from okay. smoke inhalation. So three fires broke out in various parts of the building. Only nine Branch Davidians escaped the fire, while 75 bodies were found in the aftermath. All right, here, hold on to your shorts. Pathology studies concluded 
that at least 20 Branch Davidians, including Koresh, were shot in the head or mouth, and one three-year-old boy was stabbed in the chest. Aww. I'm sorry, but what the fuck? Who could... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. No. Five of the shooting victims were children younger than 14. The studies indicated that many of those who died of gunshot injuries were from close range. The FBI did not shoot, did not fire any shots that day. And that's concluded by two different studies. They didn't fire any weapons that day. So anyone who was shot that day was shot from within that house. In total, at least 80 Branch Davidians were killed during the siege, including six Davidians killed on February 28th. But that number excludes two unborn children, who were, which were both near term. So that that that's it. Oh my god. I mean, this is such a divisive, I guess, um topic too because there are some people who think the government overreached. Yes. They should have left them alone. They were law-abiding citizens who were just doing their own thing. But I'm sorry, you're just going to sit back while young children, young girls are being groomed because that's their religious right. I mean, you know, like for, for that, I mean, that one guy said, you know, they were, they're not a cult. I, I beg your pardon. They are a cult. I'm going to go into that a little bit more when I do episode 30, but we have to protect the children. Yes. And I think the whole idea of what the FBI was trying to do is, was the right thing. Maybe how they went about it, maybe was a little harsh, a little aggressive, obviously, because like you've said a hundred times, when you back a crazy person in a corner it's never... It's always going to be bloody. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. When, you know, look but, at how many paranoid people get backed into a corner and it's just all bloodshed from that point on. It's like you can't reason right. when you're in that state. Right. You can't reason. There you was can't. no reason. It's fight or flight. Yeah. There was no reasoning right. with him, especially because if he believed, and I don't think, I think, I don't believe that David Koresh believed in his bullshit. I think he knew he was a charlatan and that he was a fucking bunch of bullshit, bullshit and he liked little girls and this was his way to get to the little girls. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. I mean, I wasn't there. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, I just think he was a good con artist. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. This is um, this is very interesting. I learned a lot of things about this case that I never knew. And I'm really glad that you didn't go the typical route because, you know, there there's a lot of things I didn't know. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I just didn't see the point in retelling. Right. Yeah. What everyone for the definitely. most part in the country just watched on Netflix. Right. Yeah. You know. Yep. Well, thanks, Cindy. uh, And thanks all of you for listening. We hope you were just as intrigued by this week's case as we were. We appreciate sharing our passion with you. We thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a five star rating. While you're there, leave us a message about absolutely anything. That's the important part is you have to leave some sort of review. It can be anything. Um, Your ratings are essential to our success and helps push us up the charts. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Yes, thank you, Mercedes. We are so grateful to spend our time together and share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for listening to us and supporting us and not thinking we're a little weird for our obsession. We, too, would like... (laughs) we would like to thank our patreon supporters also they are the extra you too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating thanks again guys and remember it It wasn't wasn't me. me